This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we have Nick Seeger. He's the president of Parkland Field Management, and Nick's a recent arrival to Denver. He's in search of a company to acquire. So this podcast is a little different. And many times we talk to business owners that have an existing business. They may be looking to transition their business or they may be looking at some point to sell. And in this case, what we have is a potential buyer of a business. And so we're going to explore today some of Nick's thoughts and also perhaps the view from the buyer's eyes when you're looking at a business. So Nick, thank you so much for taking time to be on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bob. Absolutely. Well, Nick, tell me a little bit about your business and a little bit backstory on you. Yeah, for sure. Happy to give you the story. So as you mentioned, I moved out to Denver over the 4th of July weekend about you know two months ago. Today, we were living, my significant other and I were living in Chicago before this, and we were kind of trying to figure out where we wanted to start that next phase of our life. And I had gone out and raised a little bit of money from some investors about a year ago, which I'm sure we'll touch on here in a little bit. And we were living in Chicago. She was graduating from a master's program, and we just figured Denver was a great place. She's from San Diego. I'm from Indiana. And so we picked up and, and drove the U-Haul out here, brought our puppy out, and been searching for a company mainly out here in Colorado for about two months now. So I appreciate you giving me some space here to talk about it. And so for you, people go, well, you raise some money from some investors, but you didn't just start. So you come from a family business background. I do, yeah. So I grew up back in Indiana, as I just mentioned. My family still to this day runs a third generation agriculture business, uh, I think turkeys and chickens. My grandfather started the business a number of decades ago. My father's got seven brothers, grew up in kind of a large German Catholic family in a large agriculture community back in Indiana. My dad and his five living brothers still kind of run that business today. The way I grew up, I tell people, people ask me all the time, why did I do this? And I tell them all the time, I never saw the path to success being anything other than being a business owner. You know, where I grew up, it was the largest town within 60, 70 miles. I tell people the nearest Starbucks was 60 miles away. There were no consultants, bankers, lawyers, accountants, tech companies. Like that didn't exist in my hometown. And so what I saw as success in life and in business was being a small business owner. And so that's always kind of what I grew up wanting to do. Now, frankly, I I'd always thought I'd go back and help run my family's business one day, but you know they have some pretty good strict rules and you have to go out and prove yourself in the world before. And so I did. I went out and worked in finance and sales and marketing for about 10 years. I was at Wells Fargo for a number of years and towards the latter half of my career was in more of a business development sales type role. And I had a few offers to go back to the family business in the past 10 years or so. Uh, some of them I turned down because I was still young, not ready to move back to a small farm town in Indiana. And uh, more recently, I was getting my master's degree and had just recently started dating my now significant other who I live with here in Denver. And I got another offer to go back and she kind of wasn't really willing to move back to a farm town in Southern Indiana. You mean it's not like San Diego? I mean, come on. like San Diego. <laughs> no, La Jolla is a different place in the world. You know, and I think about that. So for many of the business owners, I think they go, people don't just get what we do. And I always chuckle when somebody says, you know, I'd like to own my own business. I said, I don't know that you know what you're asking for. And so for you, like the folks that you're potentially looking at, they may well have same or similar backgrounds. They grew up in business or they've cut their teeth on their own business for years. But I think the difference for you, where you're different than perhaps some of the other folks, is not only have you seen it and grown up in a family business, but you also worked in the industry that served small businesses. 
And then you've also worked in the side of acquisition side of the house. So that's something I wanted to dive into because we talked about you're in search of a business to purchase. So let's talk about what your ideal business might look like. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, hitting on one of the points you just mentioned, I do come from a similar background as a lot of these business owners, right? I mean, I grew up in a a blue collar town in a family business, third generation. You know, I knew the names of all the employees at the company. You know, they knew me. It was run like a family. You know, it it had an eye on the long term. There weren't any short term decisions made, right? And then I did go out and cut my teeth in the professional world. I, I worked in lending for a little while to a lot of these types of small businesses. I learned what worked, what didn't work. I worked on the investing side of the house for a little bit. Now I have these investors who are going to help me and guide me and advise me along the way as I'm acquiring and operating these businesses. But you know, your question that you just asked was, what type of business am I looking for? Like, what, What's the perfect acquisition criteria? And I always start by saying, it's really looking for the right type of seller. I do care what type of business it is. I care what size it is. I care what the characteristics are. But for me, first and foremost, is who is selling the business. I'm really looking for that person who has maybe run the the business for 30, 40 years. It's either the first, second, third generation family business. They really, truly have a great relationship with their employees and their customers and their suppliers. And they're not just willing to pass the torch on to anyone. I think the perfect scenario is one where the business owner maybe doesn't have a son or daughter who wants to take over the business, even though that would be their primary choice. And then, you know, if they don't have a son or daughter who wants to take over the business, perhaps they don't want to sell to a big private equity firm or to a competitor or to a strategic column. You know, private equity tends to have a much more short-term view. They take make short-term decisions to cut costs and, and grow revenues in the short term, which isn't always the best thing for the employees and the customers of that business. And then competitors or strategics, as you may call them, you know, a lot of times they already have a lot of the employees doing the things that your employees are doing. There's a lot of redundancy there. And so they might come in and and cut some of your employees, right? And kind of just fold you into that house. So I'm really looking for that one person who is looking for a succession plan that's really going to carry on the vision, the values, the legacy of their company. And I think I'm uniquely positioned because I come from a family business multi-generational that has that those characteristics. So that's really what I'm looking for in terms of the seller, right? I need to really make that connection and the connection, the seller needs to have that connection with me. I'm not just an ordinary buyer, right? Uh, and then when it comes to characteristics of the business, this is more of what my investors and I have decided on that's going to position me for the best opportunity for my growth and for the company's growth in the future. You know, we've kind of decided that I'm best suited to find a company it's in this lower middle market that we kind of define as about five to 50 million in revenue or in finance speak, more like a million to five million in EBITDA or seller discretionary earnings, however you want to call it. I really like recurring or reoccurring revenue. You have a lot of foresight into what's going to come down the pipeline in the next six months, 12 months, 18 months. You know, it minimizes my risk as I'm coming into a new business that I probably don't understand that well. And it provides some insight into the revenue going forward while I kind of formulate my strategies and get to know the employees and the customers and move things forward. So that's kind of the size and the characteristics of the business I'm looking for. I'm trying to stay away from things that are largely cyclical. I have no way to predict the financial markets or the economy, as most people know. And so I'm trying to stay away from real estate and construction and oil and gas. Uh, you know, those things ebb and flow throughout the, the course of many years. And I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't see that. So I'm trying to stay away from those things. I don't have an expertise in healthcare, so I'm frankly not really looking for anything in healthcare. But outside of that, you know, I love business to business, business service type businesses. I love those, and then I like software and technology related to those industries. 
know, I've looked at anything from commercial landscaping to elevator maintenance and repair to call centers to veterinary software platforms. You know, I've, I've really looked at any number of things. It doesn't matter to me so much what the industry is, as long as, you know, I can understand it relatively quickly. And it's something that I think I can stick my teeth into and grow over the next 5, 10, 15 years. I think is, as you're out there looking for businesses, you describe yourself potentially as a search fund. And I think that there's most of the business owners will know about, you know, the local buyer. They'll know about the private equity folks and so on. But I don't know that they're familiar with the term search fund. So how did you get involved with the search fund side of the house? Yeah. So the search fund world was kind of started in the late 1980s and up until the mid 2000s there were maybe two or three to five maybe 10 search funders or searchers out there in the country at any given time searching for a company to acquire but i would say over the past 10 to 15 years there has been anywhere from 20 to 50 per year going in and raising search funds so many business owners that i talk to have been contacted by many search funds very often and so a lot of them are either confused, wondering why the heck they've been contacted by so many people looking for the exact same thing with similar messaging over the past five years or so. And so the way I kind of got tied into the search fund community is, you know, I mentioned I grew up in this family business. I always saw my path to success one day being a business owner. And when I finally realized I wasn't going to be able to go back to my family's business or wasn't, that wasn't an option, I started talking to other business leaders who had similar backgrounds as mine. I started talking to business owners. I started talking to people in my hometown. You know, I have nearly 30 cousins on my father's side. And the family reunions must be something. Good thing you guys raised uh, stock. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's a herd to feed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had a few cousins who were in similar situations, right? Their wife didn't want to move back to Jasper, Indiana. And so they always had the same goals I did, which was to run a small business. And they were working in corporate America and it's fine to learn there. And, and that was great for us, but it's not exactly what we always wanted to do. And so a few of them had started acquiring businesses in the Midwest from people who have similar characteristics of what I just mentioned before. And so I started talking to them and you know, they're 10, 15 years older than me. And they were having the time of their life. They loved it. You know, they were providing a great liquidity event and a solution and legacy and leadership for someone they acquired a company for. And they were doing what they always wanted to do in life. And they were very successful and they've been doing it and they loved it. So I thought that was really cool. I'd love to do that one day. Started talking to a number of business owners in my hometown and other parts of Indiana. And I was living in Chicago at the time. So I started talking to them there and just kind of came across this hypothesis that there's a lot of 60, 70, 80 year old business owners out there don't have a succession plan that they're happy with. They don't feel comfortable with someone currently in the business, running the business. They don't feel comfortable with son or daughter taking it over or the son or daughter doesn't want to take it over. And they don't really want to sell the private equity or to a competitor for any number of reasons. And I was in business school at the time, started talking to some of my professors about, hey, you know, I, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I always wanted to run a small business. And they kept throwing the idea of the high growth startups out there, like, you know, go work for Facebook or Google or these. And that never had any interest to me. I like the salt of the earth businesses that I could really sink my teeth into and something that I could grow and high growth stuff just fine. It's fantastic. It just wasn't for me. And one of my professors actually introduced me to the idea of a search fund. I had never heard of a search fund before. And he introduced me to one of the search fund investors. I'd say there's about 30 of them out there in the country today investing in search funds. And so I talked to them and they pitched me on the idea that some recent MBA graduate, some 30-year-old business person with a good background and, and some hustle and entrepreneurial spirit behind him could go out there and acquire a business from someone who wants to retire. And they can be very successful doing that today. 
And so I talked to them and I started talking to a number of searchers. I started talking to a number of people who had acquired companies that had been running them successfully and some not so successfully and trying to spend about the next year trying to figure out if this is something that I felt confident doing, that I wanted to do, whether I thought the risk reward profile was for me. And so I spent about a year, year and a half trying to figure that out. And then about a year and a half ago, I pulled the trigger and said, this is the risk I want to take. This is the time I want to do it. Uh, you know, there's no better time than the present. So I went out and, uh, and raised some money. I think about the business owner that gets hit up by any number of, let's say it's search funds alone, all right? For that business owner, what advice would you offer to the business owner that's approached by a search firm to discriminate the good ones from the moderate ones to the bad ones? Yeah, so in terms of any business owner who wants to sell their business, there are search funders out there and they're probably getting hit up by you know wealthy individuals, getting equity funds, whatever it may be. I try and guide potential sellers to think about things in three buckets. What are their personal goals for them themselves and their business in retirement, right? What are the most important things to that person in life? Does that person have sufficient time to do those things? Do they want to stay in the business after they sell it? Do they want to move on? What would that person do with their time if they weren't working on the business today? Would they spend time with their grandkids? Would they spend time at the beach? Would they start dating their wife again? I hear that all the time. Once they retire, people start dating their wife again. And it's so true. You're kind of married to your career at, at, at some point. What are the most important things to that person? And then the second bucket I ask them to think about is, in terms of operations of the business, what does your business need? Right? So this person has clearly been growing their business, whether it be 1% or 20% a year over the past 10, 15, 20 years. What would get their business to the next level? And do I bring those skills or not. My skills personally are in financial controls and sales and marketing. And so if there's a company that could really benefit from having a sales team or a sales process or more financial controls, you know, I think I could really bring some value to that person's company. If there's a private equity firm involved or if there's someone else, another potential buyer involved, does that person also bring those skills or are they just going to acquire the company and hope that it runs itself? I think there's another thing to think about is, you know, as they're thinking about these succession plans, is there someone currently in the business that they think is set up to take over the business after they retire or move on, right? Whether it be a son or daughter or whether it be an existing employee of the company. And I think a lot of business owners that I talk to, in their mind, they have someone pegged to take over their business that's already involved. But there's a lot of times where they go have that conversation with that person and realize either that person's not equipped to do so or they frankly just they don't want to have that responsibility. And so I think that's something to think about. And then you and I were talking about this earlier. What are the person's financial goals? That's kind of the third bucket, right? What's the dollar amount that that person will need to step away and retire? What do they need to get to, to hit their goals in the long term? And then in that financial bucket, search fund can be really creative with how we structure this, right? And so if someone maybe has, maybe they're not ready to solely retire or let go yet. They don't just want a bucket of money and they don't want to walk away to Florida or Mexico or wherever they want to go. You know, we can structure some sort of potential sale where they get half of the sale price in cash and they get half of the sale price in terms of equity rollover or in terms of if they want to provide loan to the company and so they can earn a nice interest rate over the next five, 10 years. There's a lot of different ways we can do it, um, but I usually tell business owners to think about it in terms of three separate buckets. And we've already hit on this earlier, what type of person do they want to sell to? Private equity, again, typically has a, a shorter term time horizon and they make more short-term decisions, which can be good and it can be bad for the business. And then when they sell to a potential competitor, 
that competitor usually wants to create some synergies by replacing or, or moving some of their own employees into that company and maybe getting rid of some of those other employees. So I really ask them to just really do some reflection in terms of what exactly they're looking for. You were mentioning you have this group of investors that you raise funds for. And so let's say you go into company A and it filled the bill, right? It was exactly what you're looking for and so on. What are the pros and cons for you in the fund? with this group of investors? How much input control or whatever do they have with you in the business? Yeah, I get this question a lot from business owners, so I appreciate you asking it. And frankly, most people just lump me in the bucket of private equity because I do have private investors. And so I completely understand where that comes from. But we have totally different types of investors. Private equity funds typically are looking for a very short-term return on their money, and they only care about the financials of that company, right? They're only worried about the capital gain when they eventually sell this company. My investors, although you might not believe it, they really do care about the mentorship and the advisement and the growth of the search fund entrepreneur myself in terms of growing and operating this company. And so while my investors, of course, want some sort of positive financial outcome from this, we have a much longer term time horizon and they're much more inclined to mentor and advise me, but also get out of my way to help me or to allow me to run this company, right? And so when you know, I have 16 investors and when we do find a company on average, I would say about 10 to 15 of those investors would ultimately say, yes, I would like to invest in this company. I would like to move forward with the process. Then I would work with those 10 to 15 investors. I would choose four of them to create kind of a board of directors or a board of advisors alongside me. So I would make up one of the five member board of directors team. And it would largely be their extremely hands-off until I tell them that I need some advice. You know, we meet quarterly. And of course, I tell them what my strategies are for the company and ask their input in terms of how we're going to grow this company. And I ask them how I need to think about making key hires and moving into different territories and things like that. But they are, they're there more as a sounding board for advice. Think of it kind of like a mentor-mentee relationship, right? They have many of them, I would say half my investors are on the pure investing side meaning they only invest in search funders and they've been doing it for years, some of them 15, 20 years, some of them only about five years, but they have all the pattern recognition that they're going to know what folks like myself are going to do when we get into a business. They know where I'm going to fail. They know where I'm going to uh, be successful. And they know my blind spots. And they've also seen so much pattern recognition in specific industries and businesses like this, that they know some of the right things to do and some of the right things not to do, but they largely are hands-off. They allow me to operate and grow the business as I need to, and then go back to them for advice again as I need to. But I would say the other half of my investors are individuals who were me at one point that acquired a business and either are still running that business or have moved on or sold that business, were very successful in doing so. They want to put some of their liquidity to work and they really want to mentor a young entrepreneur like myself. It's a very paid-forward community. And I keep using that word community because it, it truly is a community. I keep in touch pretty regularly on a monthly basis with five to 10 other search funders out there who are doing similar things for me in different parts of the country. And I've talked to a number of people who are operating companies through this model, and they lean very heavily on other individuals who are in similar situations throughout the country. As you think about the folks that are backing your search fund and so on, you think about what are their expectations of you? Let's say we're five years out, right? And you found the ideal company we're sitting here five years from today. Their expectations are one thing, and then your expectations for all the hard work are another. How do those two expectations join together or match up? Yeah, so we luckily we have we've been on the same page from day one. We have it written in an agreement. I have an operating agreement with those 16 investors. And so expectations are laid out and the amount of equity we get 
and the amount of compensation we get is also laid out in that document. It's really trying to minimize against that situation where we have misaligned incentives at some point in the future. And so the, the way the equity split would work, or the way the ownership split would work, is upon acquisition of a company, I would receive up to about 25% equity in that company, and my investors would split the remaining 75%. It might seem like an unfair split or a split that a business owner wouldn't like, but no matter what the situation, I would be the single largest shareholder of that company, and my investors want it that way. If there were a situation in which my investors, let's say only five of them invested and one of them ended up getting or wanting to get 25% equity, the rest of my investors would say no, misaligned incentives. The investors for a search fund opportunity should never have more equity than the actual search funder himself, right? We should make sure that person has the right incentives going forward. And so five years from now, if on average we've grown the company 10 to 15%, which is kind of the mantra and the growth expectations that we have to grow at about 10 to 15% a year, everyone's going to be happy. My investors aren't, they aren't private equity. They don't have this key number in the back of their mind saying, I need to make 10 times my money or I'm just not going to be happy and we're going to get Nick out of there. The search fund community is such that they want to invest in me for my personal growth and that company's personal growth so that we can continue to do this in the future and pay it forward, right? So they can invest in future searchers, so I can invest in future searchers, so I can be a mentor and advisor in the future. If let's say I acquire a company in five, seven years from now, 10 years from now, we need to exit that company because my investors need a liquidity event or something or another. You know, let's say I take a dividend or a debt recap and I get some of my investors out, you know, I can do this all over again and they want me to be set up for success that second time. And so we really make sure we have aligned incentives here. I had a business owner ask me the other day, you're bringing in a board of directors, you have investors. What if they just wake up one day and they decide you're not hitting our goals And so we're going to get you out of this company. We're going to replace you with someone else. And I said, it's not really how they think about it. Although they, I guess we could at some point get to that point. The only time I've ever heard of that happening or the only time it would happen in a a search fund investor community is if I was just doing a very terrible job, right? I was, not only was I not growing the company enough, I was being a hindrance to that company, right? I was declining that company. I I was changing the performance from positive to negative. I was being a toxic person in the business environment. At that point, I would think the business owner who owned it before would also probably think that I shouldn't be running that company. And so I don't think there's any situation that I've ever heard of where someone wasn't quite hitting their goals. And so the investor group said, all right, we're going to get you out of there and put you in here with someone else that, that can really do this. It is a very mentor-mentee relationship as cutthroat as you might think by that you know, I, the thing that struck me is, so I'm the business owner, I, and I had the ideal company, and we came to terms, and let's say I've got an office to come hang my hat in, but I'm still kind of out of the day-to-day. What does the first week or so look like when you step into that company after the deal is done? What does that look like? Yeah, and I would even extend that a little bit more. I would say the first six months to a year for someone in my position, coming in as a young person who's probably younger and perhaps more educator has more degrees if you will than most people at that company people are going to come in and look at me and say who is this person who who does he think he is come in and going to be able to take over this business and be able to manage me there's no way right so we immediately have an uphill battle in terms of building rapport at that company so for the first six months to a year when you also have to think I've never been in that industry before I don't know that company I don't know those employers I, I don't know employees I don't know those customers The first six to 12 months, it is pure learning, learning and listening. So I'm coming in day one and I'm just saying, hey, listen, guys, I'm here to just learn and to listen. 
I'm not here to make any big changes. I'm here to make sure the lights stay on. I'm here to make sure everyone continues to get paid and this company continues to grow over the next year. And over the next year, I'm gonna build relationships with the employees, the customers, the suppliers, the previous owner. I'm just gonna be taking notes and learning and listening. And then month 24 or 12 to 24, so year two, that's when I might start making a key hire, right? Or promoting someone from within to a key hire so that we can start building out a sales team or building out a finance team, right? And then even month 12 to 24, I'm, I'm still almost in that learning phase. And then years two to 10, I would say, is when you really start or when I would really start throwing gas on the fire, right? I know the business. I know everyone in the business. I know the customers. I'm confident that I can understand how to grow this company. And years two to five, seven, we're just putting gas on the fire. We are promoting from within. We're hiring for outside employees underneath them. We're really just growing this company and creating opportunities for existing employees. So that's kind of what it looks like. And, and there's also got to be at the beginning some sort of overlapping transition with the existing business owner. You know, we need a smooth handoff from that existing business owner to someone like myself. What strikes me is so many business owners, that's their job. I mean, they don't have COO, they don't have a CFO. They may not have the infrastructure that allows you to come in without the business owner. So let's say the ideal business has the patriarch of the business that's really all of those hats. He's the CFO, he's the CEO, he's the best salesman they have, and so on. Would that automatically disqualify that from a purchase because they don't have the team that would support you for the first year or so to get you up to speed? It would not disqualify a company, and I do run across that situation all the time. I would say that if that is the case where the owner holds all those hats, right, I might request that that business owner stay on board with me after acquisition for a little bit longer, right? So whereas some business owners want to sell the business and get out of there and go to their retirement home and spend time with their grandkids right away, in a business that's very easily understood and a business that has a finance manager, a sales manager, an operations manager already kind of running the company, I'm much more okay with that business owner taking off after a month or three months, whatever it may be, because I can come learn from those people. But in the terms of the business you're talking about, where that business owner really does sign all the checks and maintains operations, that sort of thing, I would just request that that person stay on with me for a little bit longer to mentor, whether it be six months, a year, or 18 months, you know, it would depend on how complicated it would be to understand those things and how quickly I could pick that up. But I think over that transition period, we would look to maybe bring in controller or something like that to take over some of the accounting stuff, bring in maybe a sales manager to train underneath me at the, at the same time. So it would not disqualify the company. I might just look for a little bit longer of a transition period. As you're out looking and you have conversations, what's the typical one or two pushback items that you're hearing in the marketplace now? Yeah. So I would say the, the biggest one is, I know I need to sell, but I'm not ready to sell. And it's funny, you know, I'd say I've been searching for about a year now. And before the pandemic, I was getting two to three conversations a week with a business owner saying, hey, you know, you're the right type of person for my business. My business is the right type of person for you. I like you. I think you could run my business and you're the right type of buyer, right? But the economy is doing really well. My company is doing really great. I only work two or three days a week. Why don't you reach back out in two or three years and we'll have a conversation then. And so during the pandemic, I kind of shut down operations for a little while. But June or July, when things started opening up a little bit more, I started reaching back out to business owners. And now the conversation has largely transitioned to, wow, I've been through two, three recessions over my career here, four recessions. I don't have the energy or time to do this anymore. I don't want to bring my company 
back up again to pre-recession levels, or even if the company's doing well, there's just so many headaches that, that maybe they're more willing to have a conversation now. But I'd say a lot of business owners are still a little uncertain with the pandemic and with the election coming out. You know, they're willing to have conversations, they want to talk about it and start building a relationship, but they're not quite ready to pull that trigger just yet. And I'm kind of okay with that. I'm not here to do a quick transaction. I have about a year and a half to two years left on my search horizon here. And I know this is a relationship game, right? Like I wouldn't sell my business to someone that I just met two months ago. I need to make sure that I understand and really truly do get to know that person. And so I'm just trying to build a relationship with a lot of these business owners at this point, because I want to get to know them. I want them to get to know me. I want to get to know them. And I want them to feel really comfortable passing their baby down to me, right? I don't want them to worry after they sell their company that it's not in the right hands. That's a big one that I get. And then number two, we hit on this earlier, but they really do have this taste in their mouth that I am private equity and that I'm going to come in and make all these big sweeping changes in their company and, and I'm going to fire their accountant or I'm going to get rid of their sales manager or get rid of their operations manager that's been there for 25 years. And that could not be further from the truth. If you think about me coming into that business in an industry that I've never been in before, for me to just get rid of the people who have been doing it for 20, 30 years and to bring in my own people, which don't exist, that would be suicide for me. I'm going to need those people, not only for the next year or two, but for the next 5, 10, 15 years. I mean, what better way to grow a company than with the people who are already there and they know the ins and outs and they can grow alongside me? You know, it's an educational process. I'm trying to educate business owners on how I'm a different, unique solution to their succession plan. And business owners are trying to educate me on how they think I can be a benefit to their company or who they're trying to find to sell their company to. So it's a relationship game and this process takes quite a bit of time. We started out and I got to thinking, I always make a note, how do people find you on social media? So what's the best way for them to find you on social media? Yeah, so I created a website. You can go to parklandfield.com and that has, it lists all 16 of my investors, all their websites, all their bios. And so if you're thinking my investors are just some black hole of capital that you're never going to know who they are. And I always tell business owners that too. If you want to speak to any of my investors at any given time, I'm an open book. I would love to have you talk to them. They'll tell you some of the same things that I'm telling you and they'll probably elaborate on it much more eloquently than I would. So it has my investors listed on there. It has a little bit of a bio on me. Got a picture of my dog if you want to go see a cute puppy on there. So that's my website. It's got a contact form on there, but you can also reach me on my email. It's nick, N-I-C-K, at parklandfield.com. And then I have a LinkedIn. I'm not so savvy to have the Instagram and Twitter and all that business stuff yet. You got to have that for pictures of your dog, don't you know? I, yeah. <laughs> well, you know. You haven't know. <laughs> been convinced to make a, a social media account for the dog yet, but maybe. Coming. It's coming. So why Parkland Field? Why is that? Yeah. So not many people ask me that question. I'm glad you did. And I know you kind of touched on it last time we spoke, but so Parkland Field, it does have a bit of a meaning to me. So I mentioned that my family runs a third generation business in agriculture back in Indiana. It's a small community. You know, it's got 10,000 people, but it's the biggest town in, you know, in 60 miles. And we grew up in one of, you know, it's one of those areas where everyone knows everyone in the community. You know, I, Grew up with my cousins. I, you know, I knew everyone that lived in the town. And there was this country club in the middle of town where everyone kind of went during the summers. We all congregated at the pool growing up when we were little. They'd go there when we were later. You know, our fathers would go there and play cards. We would have company picnics there with the whole Sega companies. And we basically grew up there, essentially. And as many country clubs did in the early 2000s, it was going through some trouble. And my father was actually the president of the Jasper Parks and Rex board 
very much like Leslie Nope from Parks and Rec, if you've seen the show. The show was actually based on my hometown, so my father, I guess, is Leslie Nope, which is kind of crazy. Anyway, so the country club was going under, and the family didn't really want to see the country club go under, so we tried to revive it. We acquired it from the previous owner. The family did, and we tried to revive it, but there's no hope saving some of these country clubs in small towns these days. And so yeah, after about five years or so, the city came in and wanted to buy the land back. You know, it was a number of acres in the middle of town. It was a beautiful, hilly part of the, the city. And the city wanted to turn it into the real estate, commercial real estate. So housing and, and shopping centers and all that sort of jazz. And my family wasn't interested in that. You know, we're very into community-like feel. And so the family at that point struck a deal with the city and said, hey, all right, well, listen, we'll sell it to you for a dollar, but you've got to promise us that you're going to turn it into parklands for the city, for everyone to use and, and to make it still community center where the community comes in and congregates all the time. And so my family actually did that. And then we invested some of our own money back into it. And today it's a two and a half mile running, walking, biking loop around two lakes or ponds that have been built inside there. We put exercise equipment in alongside the trail. There's a playground, there's a, a splash pad for little kids. It's dog friendly. There's a new restaurant up top that overlooks kind of the park. It's a really great place for the, the community to kind of add, to congregate and get even the parklands. Uh, and so it was kind of a way that I saw that a successful business in a tight knit community could give back to the community. Because I'm very of the mindset that a community doesn't thrive unless it has successful and thriving businesses. And I don't think the businesses thrive unless they decide to give back to that community. And I think it's just a holistic view of things. And that's how I plan on running a company in a community I eventually acquire. I just think it's really important to give back to your community. And, and the field part of the name actually just comes with my obsession with baseball. Uh, you know, it's a team sport. And I think running a business is, is very similar. So part of the field it is. I think about the people listening go, wow, I think I want to start a search fund, right? And go, that must really be simple. I suspect likely not. If you were to look over your fundraising efforts and the folks that support you in forming this, what do you think the tipping point was where they trust you enough to trust you with their money and investment to pursue another company? Yeah, so I didn't have a tough time raising money, but it was only because I spent a year and a half building a relationship with those investors beforehand, where they knew exactly who I was, they knew exactly what my motivations were, they knew where my skill sets were and where my skill sets were not. And so we had just a very candid conversation when I was raising some money about what industries do you think that you would fit best in, right? You have a skill set in financial controls and sales and marketing. Would you acquire a business that already has a thriving sales process, but maybe isn't a little isn't as operationally efficient. And there's no way I would acquire one of those businesses because it doesn't fit my skill set, right? And so they, you know, sure they looked at my background and they looked at my skill set and they looked at my resume. That really wasn't the deciding factor. They really wanted to understand what my true skills were and what my motivation was. My motivation wasn't coming from being an investment banker and wanting to make gobs of money. That's just not where I'm coming from. They really wanted someone who had a true desire to be an entrepreneur at a small and growth stage business, as opposed to running a big corporation or running a VC-backed company. And, you know, I can say all that that I want, but, you know, they talked to my professors, they talked to my family, they talked to ex-employers of mine, really got to understand who I was as a person and where my skill sets were. And we really just congregated on the idea that, all right, we're going to find a business that really fits Nick's skill set and his motivation. 
and that's going to be where he's most successful. It was a longer process and it was a, a slower process because it wasn't just your typical interview process, right? These investors are taking quite a risk on me to invest in this type of company when they really don't have any say how this company is run. So they're really just making a bet on me and it's not venture capital. You know, they're not going to get a hundred times their money someday. They might get one or two or three times their money. It's really just betting on, on me as a person and, and betting on us as a team, right? Because they're not just betting on me. They're betting on the fact that when they bring advice, I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to take their advice into consideration and I'm going to do what's best for that company. I think about in my background, when you talk to many of the business owners, I'll say, what's your exit strategy for your business? Do you have one and what's it look like? And so for you, so you're in the, I want to take and look and find the ideal company and I want to grow the company. What does your exit from that company look like? There's a couple of different ways it can happen. Obviously, my investors are going to want a return on their capital at some point, right? We've talked about how the actual return they get, it doesn't matter as much as long as they get more than they put in. You know, I think for me, my goal has always been to kind of grow a company into annuity, pass it on to my kids so they can pass it on to their kids, right? But because I'm taking on investors, you know, I don't have a pool of cash myself that I can just go acquire a company with. I needed to bring on investors. And so I'm going to need a liquidity event for them one day, probably in the next five to 10 years. And so let's say I'm growing a company, things are going well, it's five years from now, it's seven years from now. And they're saying, all right, Nick, you've done a great job with this. What's next? Do you wanna keep growing this company? Do you wanna move on to something else? What's your plan? You know, I have a few different options at that point. The first option is the easiest to understand and it's kind of, all right, well, we sell the company to either another search funder or to an equity fund or to an institutional or to a competitor or to just someone else who wants to, to take this company to even the next level from where I took it to. And then we take the proceeds of that capital and then I would go hopefully do it all over again. And, and then I could do it with my own capital and I could grow that company forever, right? As it for my kids. That's option one. The other options are I find a way to pay out my investors on the capital they invested, plus whatever they think their money has accrued to. And I can do that a couple of different ways. Either I can go out to a lender and say, hey, here's what my company's worth. I have no debt on the company. I would like to get my investors out and own 100% of this thing. Could you provide some debt for that so that I could take out my investors? It's possible. I could also, if I have quite a bit of cash reserves in the company, which I probably wouldn't because I would like to reinvest all the cash from the company back into the company for growth, I could also take my investors out that way. I will say that those latter two options are probably less of a probability just because I would have to then agree on evaluation with my investors and we have different motives in that regard. But there's probably will be a liquidity event at some point in the next you know, seven to 10 years or so. It's pretty flexible, but my long-term goal has always been to own and operate a company. I don't plan on being a deal person. I'm not going to be a private equity firm that's got a portfolio of companies. I'm not going to buy and flip companies over and over again. It's not just me. You know, for you, so you've been here for a while and you have a target time frame. So how are you doing? Are you finding what you're looking for or are you still hot on the trail? Yeah, so COVID kind of threw a wrench in that, as you can expect. I was gaining some traction for the first three to six months. You know, at that point, I'm still trying to figure out what's my message? How do I connect with these business owners? You know, what questions are they going to have? How do I best alleviate some of their concerns? And so I would say just as March was rolling around this year, I was starting to get a swing of things and get my pitch down, get the under, get, understand how this process was going to play out. And then the pandemic hit. So things kind of shut off for a few months. And then I turned the spigot back on, I'd say in June or July, and, and I've moved out here to Colorado. And I've had some really good success with business owners. 
they put an offer in on a few companies and didn't win them for a few different reasons. You know, there were a couple of them that decided they wanted to sell to a bigger private equity firm, and that was totally fine. And then a couple of them, some of the things that they told me prior to digging into the books and records weren't exactly the most truthful. Probably best that we didn't go forward with those anyways. And I'm in the process right now of building relationships, let's put it that way. And so I've probably spoken to five to 10 business owners a week over the past eight weeks. And I would say about one to two people a week we have a conversation with and it's the right company type fit. They're looking to sell for the right reasons. They want to sell to someone like me and they like me as a person in terms of what I can bring to their company. And so we're kind of moving to the next phases of things. It's not a very quick process. You know, I'm not saying, hey, right, we spoke on the phone for 30 minutes, send me all the information you have and we'll be out tomorrow. As I mentioned earlier, they're trying to get to know me. They're trying to get comfortable with me. And I'm trying to do the same with them, right? So I probably am currently in talks with, I would say five to 10 companies that are based here. Most of them are based here in Colorado and moving along pretty nicely. And, and we're just trying to build a relationship. I think what I think is nice out in the search fund community too is, we're not solely numbers-based, right? So we're trying to build a relationship and, and the relationship is just as important as the numbers are. And so I'm getting out to visit with business owners after the first 30-minute phone call just to shake their hand and be with them in person so they can really get a feel for who I am and, and know that I'm not just some snake trying to come in and snatch their company from them. I've been quizzing you to death now for some time. I think it's just really interesting that it's maybe a perspective that many of the business owners don't have an insight to necessarily where you're going to know these are the things I'm looking for and it's from the buyer's eyes. And so for that business owner that perhaps is thinking about selling, what advice might you offer to them to make their business attractive to a search firm? What might they do? Yeah, so there's a lot of ways you can go about this. You can hire a third party, you can bring in an accountant or a controller, or you can bring in a consultant to come in and tell you what you probably need to do to get your books and records in order to get the company prepared to sell. The things that we're going to look for aren't that different than what most other potential buyers out there are going to look for. We're going to want to take a look at the books and records. We're going to want to see the cash collections from some of your customers. We're going to want to know who your customers are. We're going to want to know who your employees are and kind of what they do at the company. I would say as you're trying to think about preparing your company for sale, you mentioned earlier about the business owner who wears all hats. If you can start, and I know it's tough for a lot of business owners to do, but if you can start delegating some of the management responsibilities at your company to some of your managers that you already have and taking a step away from the company. And I think a good litmus test is if you take a week off and you go in the mountains or you go on vacation and you leave your phone behind, is your company still going to be running when you get back? And the more your answer weighs towards, yes, the company will be totally fine if I'm gone for a week or two, I think the better off your business is. And so if there are business owners out there who aren't thinking of selling for one, two, three, five years, I would say start thinking about that now, right? You can start training people underneath you. You can start offloading some roles and responsibilities slowly, but surely, right? You don't got to do it all day one. But I think the more you get to that point, the better off your business is going to be. Well, you know, Nick, it's interesting. I think about perspective and having the company where it can run without you. It sounds so much like I'm former military and you'd have your unit run well, whether you're there or not. And so that just means you teach everybody else really well. And I think it's a hallmark of a really good leader and a really good firm that it can run and you're not critical to day to day. And I think for you, I applaud your courage and pluck for lack of a better term. Well, that's a wrong, bad analogy for your family's <laughs> business, but for coming and relocating to Denver and trying to be part of the community. And I think 
picking up a company and, and taking care of the legacy of the company and the employees, I think is really admirable. So in closing, is there anything that I should have asked you or a message that you would like to leave and close the episode out with? I appreciate your time, Bob. I kind of got two closing things. One, sure. again, you can visit my website, parklandfield.com. It'll give you a lot of information. There's a one-pager on there for potential sellers. If you're looking to learn a little bit more, you can reach out to me at nick at parklandfield.com. And I kind of want to leave you with just one closing thought. It's kind of the mantra that I have as a searcher and that business owners might be interested to hear. I always tell business owners that I'm trying to provide the three L's to you as a business owner. I'm trying to provide leadership, legacy, and liquidity for your company, right? I'm trying to be that next generation leader that you feel comfortable handing over your business to for the next generation. I'm trying to be the legacy, right? I'm trying to be the right person for your business. I'm not just trying to come in and wipe out your employees and grow this thing. I really do want to carry on the vision and values and the legacy that you have created as a business owner and liquidity. You know, every business owner is in it for some sort of capital gains reason. And I want to provide a nice bucket of cash for a seller to go spend more time with their grandkids or spend more time with their wife or do the things that they've always loved to do and spend more time on. So I think leadership, legacy, and liquidity are the three things that, that I'm trying to provide for a potential business owner. Well, Nick, I appreciate you taking time to share your perspective and wisdom and uh, wish you the best of luck in what would be really fun is somewhere in the future when you found that business, right? And you've got the business transaction completed. It would be fun to come back and say, okay, why? You know, what was the trigger? What'd you do? And that would be a really nice way to close the loop. So again, thank you for sharing and thank you for all of your time and expertise. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. You betcha.